Hello and welcome to The Rabbit Hole, the definitive developers podcast in fantabulous Chelsea, Manhattan. I'm your host, Michael Nunez. My co-host today, Dave Anderson. My producer, William Jeffries. And today, we have a special guest, Max Jacobson. How are you? Hi, I'm great. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Max was recently gave a talk at RubyConf 2017. That must have been exhilarating and awesome. How was that? <laughs> yeah, it was a thrill of a lifetime. I don't mean to sound sarcastic. I <laughs> had a really great time. It was my first conference talk and it was stressful, but fun. And yeah, it went pretty well. Awesome. Could you give us a little bit of what the talk was about? Sure. Yeah. So I was in the comparative Ruby track. So they have multi-track conference where there were four different talks going on at any given time. The one I submitted to was called Comparative Ruby. And it was kind of comparing Ruby to another programming language that I've been learning over the last like two years, which is Rust, which is pretty different language. When I was thinking about learning another language, I had a friend who advised, okay, you've been working with Ruby for a couple of years maybe learn something very different. I was saying, you know, maybe I would learn Python. He's like, don't learn Python. It's really similar to Ruby. It's great. There's nothing wrong with it, but... Yeah, it's very it's very similar. I, I recently switched from Ruby or from Python to Ruby and it just took like a weekend. You'd be pretty like done right away. <laughs> <laughs> Which is great. Like, if I like needed to jump on a project and be up to speed quickly, I'm sure there are actually a lot of differences that I'm completely unfamiliar with, but... In terms of new concepts, like programming language design concepts or fundamental things that where they just behave differently, mm-hmm. he encouraged me to pick something very different. And then I started learning Rust because one of my teachers was talking about it a lot, about how great it is. And I figured, okay, this is a statically compiled language and has a lot of different concepts that you need to learn. But the sort of superficially, it doesn't look that different. It's, it's not super scary looking it's not like c plus plus or c yeah it's sort of the cool thing about it i've learned now is that it kind of is like them in terms of what it's like useful for but it kind of looks like ruby and javascript kind of mashed together and then a bunch of types set on top Mm. but anyway (laughs) so the talk is about my experience learning rust after learning ruby and working with ruby for a few years and the way that it sort of changed the way that i think about ruby and so the title is there are no rules in ruby that's about right (laughs) it's <laughs> very true you can do pretty much anything it's kind of scary the wild wild less of programming i once found a method in a library that i was using in ruby that was an emoji cool i, I needed to clear a queue and it was a bomb <laughs> no <laughs> <For real? laughs> so it is very true that there are no rules so it's q dot bomb yeah <laughs> exactly. no way <laughs> yeah and there are a lot of things that you can do in ruby you can have any valid unicode identifier and that includes things like emoji yeah <laughs> and I, I just kept finding that the more i used ruby after learning rust the more things felt kind of wild west i think i heard someone say yes yeah yeah it's kind of scary so I, I kind of went the other way. Like my first language that I spent a lot of time with was Java, which is statically typed much like Rust mm-hmm. and very, very strict where you have to define your interfaces and all that. And then I moved to learn Python and found it terrifying. <laughs> There's just so much freedom. Anything was possible. And it took me a while to get used to that. Yeah. So the thing that I started thinking about is that I think that there are a lot of kind of career trajectories and learning trajectories, depending on what order you learn things in. 
where if you start with a language like Ruby and then you go and learn a language like Java or Rust, you might react differently depending on who you are, but you might be kind of open to the idea that you can write very flexible code and you can make that work because you've experienced it. And mm-hmm. if you're going the other way, you might be like, oh my God, my types, I need my types. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and how am I going to ever write reliable production code? And so I sort of had that experience of, oh my God, all the things about Ruby that are kind of challenging, a lot of them anyway, don't necessarily have to be that way. There are a lot of things that I was sort of taking for granted. And it was very much because of my own ignorance where I just hadn't really used a statically typed language before. Mm-hmm. And it was a really interesting experience to realize, oh my gosh, that can help. Yeah, yeah. Like a lot of people use dynamic languages kind of rail against having types, but it's it's funny seeing the pendulum swing the other way a bit. I recently worked with Flow in JavaScript, which is a typing extension. And, you know, of course, there's TypeScript and mm-hmm. numerous other ways. And also with Python, there's MyPy, which lets you put types in your Python, which seemed crazy at first. But, you know, why not? Like, Right. It's like putting on shackles and, uh, <laughs> and, and being happy because, it, you know, you feel like it might be helping you write more safe or resilient code. I love my shackles. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And it's a weird transition to make. It's very much like changing your mental perspective from where you're looking at the world. And yeah. Yeah. Also, you don't have to allow people to monkey patch the string class, which is like a really nasty thing that people could do in Ruby and that I've gotten burned with. Yeah. When you add a gem as a dependency to your project, it's running whatever code it's got. And that could be monkey patching string. It could be removing all the methods from string. In theory, that could happen. You could require a gem, and now strings have no methods. That's pretty trolly, though. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, yeah. So (laughs) so a a lot of this stuff, I sort of, after like thinking about a lot and talking to a lot of people about this, I've sort of come to realize a lot of the things that I am sort of afraid of are never going to happen. So not that I like really realistically thought that would happen, but on some level, it bothers me that it can. Mm, Yeah, Yeah. it is a little bit disorienting. I, I remember like when I first started learning rails and you have all these monkey patched methods on all of the objects like with active support and it's like what do you what do you mean like my regular string and in my ruby repl doesn't have like two json or my my hash doesn't have two json or whatever convenience methods that are just magically there when you're using active support yeah and so that sort of i think gets at another topic that i was really interested in thinking about and talking about is this idea for beginners who are learning their first language. I feel like that's the kind of thing that can trip people up when they build their mental model. Okay, when I have a string, I can call to JSON. If that's something they've done, they start thinking that's how Ruby works. And then they have bugs later on while they're developing when that method's not defined. So the thing I started wondering is all these things that make Ruby really flexible and really productive for like advanced programmers, what if those make Ruby harder to learn? That was a fear I started being a little obsessed with. I think that we talk about Ruby. I'm curious if you agree with the sentiment as being a really great language for beginners. I believe so. Similar to Dave, I learned Java first, and that was like my first professional career language. And then I went to Ruby and was paralyzed at how easy things just magically happened a lot of the time and like how 
unrestrictive you are and like how there are no rules. But I, oh, after learning Ruby, I realized, oh, this is a great language. Like had I started learning this first, it would have been a lot easier than the overhead you have with types in Java. Yeah. Yeah. I also started with Java and I think now, I mean, it might, this might be a symptom of us all having not started with Ruby. Maybe we're not the right people to ask, but it does (laughs) seem to me like there's so much boilerplate setup to get anything to happen in some of these older languages like Java that the freedom that you get by being able to, you know, have a, have a main object and not have to set up your class and your public static void main and all of the ceremony makes it so that beginners can write print hello world and be done. Whereas in Java, that would be like six lines of code. Yeah. I've heard an interesting philosophy recently about like teaching beginners on, on Ruby and how they need to earn every little bit of convenience that the language gives them. So like before you can use a map function or for each function, you need to understand what a for loop is. And then once you have that, then, you know, or like, a yeah, you can build off of that and say, okay, now you can unlock this and use these things and keep on building up and eventually use all of the fancy aliases and whatever else. That right. Offers. I think that's a really interesting point. And I think the way that I think about it when I'm in a teaching context is that you want to teach someone a concept and you want to teach them something kind of high level and interesting that they're going to be compelled by and be able to use to do something. But you can't really start there because it's too much all at once. You have to break it down into the smallest units that you can and then like reassemble this little tower of ideas until you reach the thing you really wanted to get to. Mm. And if you try to start there, it's too much to really fit into your head all at once. So the thing I started to worry about is what if the whole language with Ruby is too much in the sense that when you start hitting problems, you don't necessarily have the tools to understand what's happening because anything could be happening. There's so many things. It's such a big language that has so many built-in keywords and Mm -hmm. a large standard library and there's so much going on that it can be pretty easy to fall into a trap. Yeah, especially with like alias methods that are doing the same thing and you've never seen them before or like with Rails, like your context is all of the things that exist a lot of the times, like (laughs) helpers and whatever else. It can be hard to reason about what are the scope of possible things that could be happening at any given time. Yeah, so I started worrying about this and convincing myself that, therefore, a smaller language is necessarily better for beginners. Right. And something like Rust, to come back to that a little bit, is kind of like Java a little. It has a lot of the same trappings where you're defining types and you have to have a main function, but they make really big efforts to do away with anything that's not really necessary. So it's sort of easier to get up and running. It's certainly not as easy as with Ruby, but they have made tons and tons of efforts on what they call, I think, the ergonomics initiative Mm. to Mm. do away with all of the barriers and make it a really powerful language that is also accessible. So I wanted to, I was sort of working my way backwards to that opinion. Right. But in reality, Ruby's kind of great for beginners. Yeah. (laughs) Like I have this theory that actually I don't agree with. I don't know if that has ever happened to you. Oh yeah, definitely. Usually I flip-flop like eight times. Okay. <laughs> have your opinion, you're like, this wrong. <laughs> so, Max, you had mentioned before you worked in Rust for some time and you know, working in a statically typed language like Rust or Java is the conversation we had before. 
that feels like you're working with the shackles and how everything is statically typed and Ruby is dynamically typed and everything is in the wild, wild west. What were some of the differences or something that you would like to see that was done in Rust when you went back to Rubyland you wish you had? Or like, what are some of the key differences that you see between one language or another and the benefits of using the shackles that is Rust? <laughs> Yeah, the shackles that we sometimes like and maybe sometimes don't. <laughs> yeah, so one thing about them that I do like that I talked a little bit about in the talk is the different model of error handling that Rust has compared to Ruby. So in Ruby, when a problem happens, an exception gets raised. So it's an exception model where an error gets raised and then the person that called that method can decide if they're going to rescue it. And if they don't rescue it, then the program will crash. Mm. That's the exception model, and that's in Ruby. In Rust, it has an error model where instead of raising an exception, a function that might have a problem go wrong. So like, for example, if you have a function that reads a file and returns the content of the file, that could go wrong if the file doesn't exist, right. if the file is like encoded in a funny way that we can't read, or we don't have permission to read it. There's a number of different ways that that could go wrong. Mm -hmm. And looking at that function signature, we will be able to see exactly what those are. So with Ruby, you don't necessarily know looking at, like you see, okay, there's a method read file, but you don't necessarily know what it returns or if it raises errors or if it does, what are they? And with Rust, the convention is that if your function could either succeed or fail, it'll return a result type, which is either success, which they call Okay. <laughs> okay, or failure, which they call error, E-R-R. Okay. In the type signature, because it's a typed language, you can see exactly what type of error it could be. And so you can plan really effectively. You kind of can think about every problem that could happen while you're writing the code and decide exactly how you want to handle that. And so the result is that your program is very unlikely to crash in an unexpected way because you were sort of forced to think about it all up front. Right. Because in order to actually read the okay value, you need to check, is it okay or not? So that's sort of the beautiful dream ideal of this error model. And I believed that and was excited about that. And the more I actually wrote Rust code, I sort of learned that you also don't have to do it the right way. You can also use this function called unwrap, which is just like, ah, it probably worked. Just ah. unwrap it. Give me the okay value. If it's not okay, feel free to crash, which is sort of discouraged, but it is allowed. So part of my like journey here with Ruby and Rust is I started really drinking the Kool-Aid and really wanting to believe that Rust had all of the answers and that it would force me to write perfect code, no problems, and always does the right thing. It turns out that's not technically 100% right. Okay. But it does provide tools to help you go in that direction. And it has conventions, just like Ruby has conventions, that your function shouldn't panic. They call it panicking if you unwrap an error. Oh. That it shouldn't panic, it should return the error. And I really like that. And I kind of wish Ruby had that. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Would you... I mean, right now you have, you're currently writing production code in Ruby. Would you be more interested in writing production code in Rust or, or Ruby? Like, what are, what are your thoughts on one versus the other? Which one you think is better to work with overall? Whoa, okay. Great question. <laughs> That's a trap. <laughs> yes, it is, by the way. Well, I have way more experience using Ruby and I'm way more 
good at Ruby. Okay. <laughs> and so if I actually had to jump in to be productive, I would almost definitely go with Ruby. So the other thing that I think is sort of interesting about this is that even if you come to the conclusion that like Rust is better, which I'm not necessarily there yet or anything, it doesn't mean necessarily that that you should use it for everything, that there there's always trade-offs in everything. And right. one of the big trade-offs with Rust is that the like library ecosystem is way less mature. So you would probably end up writing a lot more code where you would just include a gem in Ruby and it would take care of like sending emails. Like maybe that exists in Rust. I don't know. Right. There's way more community backing in Ruby because it's been out for many years now versus Rust that has a smaller community and doesn't have as much packages or gems or I don't what yeah, are, what are, what are Rust them crates. Crates, Rust, and crate. Yeah, so there's not a lot of crates. <laughs> Enough like Ruby has gems. I mean, gems sounds nice. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I imagine as the community grows, there will be more crates for sure. And if you are the kind of person that likes doing open source work, it's kind of a cool opportunity because you can fill in those gaps and you can be the person that writes the like the web framework for Rust. There's a number of micro web frameworks for Rust, and none of them have like quote unquote won yet. So like there's kind of a burning up and coming war that I think will come. There's this one called Rocket that seems like it might be going off. I'm not sure. Has the most aggressive sounding name. Rocket. Rocket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so I don't know. In Ruby, we talk a lot about programmer happiness. And I think it's interesting to think about why exactly Ruby provides programmer happiness. That's one of the goals of the language. And I think that it does. It has a lot of a million amazing things about it. And it feels really great to write Ruby. It has a really good workflow and it sort of feels like you're expressing your ideas in real time. The part where I sort of feel like it maybe provides less programmer happiness in this facet than maybe Rust does is in things like maintaining a project over time. Mm. This is an untested theory, but I don't know. Do you often have bugs in production that feel like, oh, I should have thought that that might happen. I should have checked that nail case. I should have... Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Yeah, that's happened for sure. And, it, and it's interesting because some of the folks that are the biggest proponents for static types and dynamic language like Python, Dropbox, like their entire code base is Python. And they're the ones who were pretty largely bankrolling the static types in Python because they have a huge code base and it became very hard to reason about. Yeah, and so I think that does make me programmer unhappy. <laughs> I, I'm not prepared to come down on either side. <laughs> yeah, and I guess also like something that makes programmers happy is having a smarter ID and having a statically typed language lets your ID be a lot smarter and help you be a better programmer. And I'm sure like you're talking about the exception handling or error handling, how it's built into the definition of the function. Like I'm sure your ID could easily be like, hey, this is a dangerous function. You need to watch out for it. <laughs> and this is how things could go wrong. Yeah, that jump to definition feature in like JetBrains products for statically typed languages. Oh, man, I miss that every time I use a dynamic language. Mm. You can get kind of close with C tags, but it's not the same. JavaScript yeah. is like really difficult at times. <laughs> it's like, wait, what? which function that has the same name? And it's just like, yeah. I get sad. I mean, I know that I believe WebStorm could kind of figure it out yeah. sometimes. And sometimes like, it's just yeah, like, I went oh. to a talk that the creator of Turn, which is like a 
code analysis tool for JavaScript. And he was talking about like, oh my gosh, source trees and like doing all this amazing stuff. And then I can go to the definition or know what this thing is. And I'm like, wait, I'm coming from a Java background, so I don't understand why this is important. But all, all the JavaScript <laughs> developers are like losing their minds. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it's really cool. It's very helpful. It makes programmers happy. For sure, yeah. And that's another thing where because of my trajectory coming from Ruby to Rust, I have no experience with that. And the IDE story is kind of young as well. There's this thing called the Rust Language Server, which is a server that runs that can provide information about your source code to whoever wants it. And Mm -hmm. so now editors are integrating with the Rust Language Server. And the best one so far is Visual Studio Code, which shows you all of the... (laughs) all of the information about your code and as you're typing it will do things like say hey you know you need to handle all of these different kinds of errors that may come back from this function and if you miss one it'll tell you and it's pretty good hate me but i definitely use visual studio code and i think it's amazing i love it i don't know why I just I think it's cool. Don't hate you. Oh, okay. Okay. I mean, I, I like people, like, people I'm really glad we bad rap. Bad, Microsoft gets a bad rap. And I mean, VS Code is dope. I definitely love VS Code. Man, glad we cleared the air. Yeah, exactly. We're not fighting after this. It's great. Cool. Do we have any teach and learns today? Yeah, I think we do. <laughs> I've learned and taught some things recently. Awesome. I'm new to teach and learns, but the same. Yeah. So recently I've been working more with Jest and snapshot tests and wanted to find a way to like integrate Enzyme for doing shallow rendering of React components with Jest and started using Enzyme to JSON. And it's pretty nice. Like Jest has this nice little hook to serialize all the Enzyme things and just happens seamlessly under the covers. And it's great. I love it. We spoke about Jest a couple of times on the podcast, and I still haven't given it a chance since the first time I've ever used Jest when it first came out, and that was like insane usage. But I hear a lot of good things about it now, and I should definitely give it a try. Yeah, peer pressure. <laughs> Is this a visual testing thing? <laughs> I've, ne- I've never used Jest. Oh, so, I've never used React. I'm very... Yeah. So, I mean, for those who are not familiar with Jest, basically it is a testing framework that Facebook came out with. For the most part, it's just a test runner and gives you describe blots and ick blocks. But you can also have snapshots where it will just capture a value. Okay. Similar to VCR in Ruby for like API requests. Mm-hmm. And it'll just compare that to it. So it's like kind of the opposite of TDD because you're developing and then you're looking at the output of the snapshot and be like, yeah, I like that. Let's keep that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it can be nice because like you, you capture really nitty gritty things that I would not care to write tests for 10,000 little details of how <laughs> my visual components are, are looking. Yeah. It seems like a really interesting combination of automated and manual testing. Yeah, exactly. So you're saying that you had something as well. Oh, yeah. I wanted to share a tool I started using recently for Ruby debugging. So I'm a fan of writing short little Ruby scripts to illustrate problems and try to understand ideas. And what I usually do is go into IRB and write a line, hit up arrow, change a line, do that over and over. And it's kind of great. But I found this cool tool called Seeing is Believing, which is the tool that Avdi Grimm uses on the Ruby top of screencasts. And so it has a, a Vim plugin and an Emacs plugin. And the idea is that you write your Ruby script and then without even leaving your editor, you just like hit enter and it runs the program, captures the output, 
and then inlines the output back into the program as a comment. And so you can keep tweaking things, keep hitting enter, and it'll replace the output with the new output. Oh, wow. And I just find it really pleasant for debugging and kind of playing with Ruby. Awesome. Seeing is believing was the name of the... Yes, there's a gem called Seeing is Believing, and then uh, like a, I use the Vim plugin called like Vim Seeing is Believing. Awesome. Yeah, cool. i got to check that out. Great. Max, where can people reach you in the internet, if you will? Sure, yeah. I have a blog at hardscrabble.net, and I'm on Twitter at Max Jacobson. Awesome. And people can find your your talk during those platforms, I imagine? Yeah, it'll be on my on my website. Awesome. Cool. Well, it was great having you, Max Jacobson. Thank you for coming on down. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. This was super fun. Awesome. I'm glad you had a good time because that would be super awkward <laughs> if, you if, you if you didn't have a good time. I'd like to thank my co-host, Dave Anderson. Thank you for coming on down. Thanks, man. And our producer, William Jeffries, thank you for joining in on the conversation. Great to be here. Feel free to hit us up at twitter.com slash radiofreerabbit. I'm Michael Nunez, and this is The Rabbit Hole. We'll see you next time.